Good afternoon and welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. This show is created with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it begins with love, love from the hip. Benjamin Rush, one of the founding fathers of America, also referred to as the doctor who convinced America to sober up, challenged the accepted belief that alcoholism was purely a moral failing and subsequently progressed the concept that addiction should be viewed as a disease. The history of rehabilitation in the U.S. dates back hundreds of years, with drug abuse plaguing America since the 1800s. In 1864, the New York State Inebriate Asylum, the very first hospital to treat alcoholism as a mental health condition, was established. More and more drug abuse rehabilitation programs and institutions were to follow, which included AA, or Alcohol Anonymous, founded by Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson in 1935. According to the NIAAA, or the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, It is estimated that 95,000 people die from alcohol-related causes annually, making it the third leading preventable cause of death in the U.S., with the first being tobacco and the second being a poor diet and physical inactivity. In a survey conducted by the NIAAA in 2019, 14.1 million adults ages 18 and older had AUD, or alcohol use disorder, with men at 8.9 million and women at 5.2. And when it came to kids ages 12 to 17, it was estimated that about 414,000 had AUD, with more being female at 251,000 and 163,000 for males. Other studies concluded that each year, 696,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 report being assaulted by another student who has been drinking. 97,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 experience alcohol-related sexual assault or date rape. And roughly 1,825 college students between the ages of 18 and 24 die from an alcohol-related injury or motor, motor vehicle crash per year. Based on combined data from 2009 to 2014, it is estimated that about 1 in 10 children lived in households with at least one parent with an AUD, and 1 in 35 children in a household with a parent with an SUD, or a substance drug disorder. These numbers have risen substantially in the last few years, if not exponentially in this year 2020 alone. There is no doubt that the consequences of dealing with this pandemic is affecting everyone. Depression has tripled in the U.S. alone. A recent study conducted by the University of Houston revealed that worrying about the pandemic had associations with using substances to cope with it, and alcohol led with the highest percentage. It was also reported that people who started using during this pandemic had the highest levels of worry. Professor Svalensky, who led this study, warns that the impact of COVID-19 on psychological symptoms, disorders, addiction, and health behavior is substantial and ongoing and will negatively impact people's mental health and put them at greater risk of chronic illness and drug addiction. Still, those that are affected the most are the children of addicted or abusive households, with kids needing to be homeschooled, 
heightened anxiety around lost income, social isolation, crowding in the home, and lack of help outside the home, parents are facing exceedingly high amounts of stress. And for parents who already had issues managing daily life and a tendency towards addiction or abuse before COVID, their children are definitely paying the price. In fact, a recent study during this pandemic in the UK found an alarming rise in abuse-related head injuries among children, only adding to the increased evidence of the massive toll this is taking on the children. As of August 2020, a World Health Organization report on global child abuse noted that schools were closed to 1.5 billion children worldwide. And these school closures, although they are affecting all children, are severely impacting children of abusive and addicted households most. What once was a safe place, a place to report abuse, a place to get a warm meal, a place to feel some sense of normalcy, and a place to have fun and be a kid is no longer. SAMHSA, or the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, highly recommends law enforcement, school counselors, and teachers offer as many virtual or telephone check-ins as possible. They emphasize that child protection agencies are overwhelmed, making at-home visits slim to numb. And they urge everyday people to take action by alerting suspected victims of abuse that there is help available, whether it is a child or the intimate partner suffering from violence. These kids who felt helpless before feel even more helpless now, and it is our responsibility to help them. If you see or hear something, it is not only your obligation to do something, but it is also this something that you do that can change or potentially save a child's life. Today on Love from the Hip, I have the extreme pleasure of having Dr. Claudia Black. Dr. Black is an educator and addiction and trauma specialist for families. She will share insight, explanations, and personal stories from her new book, It Will Never Happen to Me, growing up with addiction as youngsters, adolescents, and adults, in hopes of helping others of addicted households to live their best life, as well as helping us to better understand the children of addicted households and how we can help. So stay tuned for this insightful show. The veil is a line between physical and non-physical realities, between spirit and matter. Listen in to Go Beyond the Veil, an exciting new show every second Wednesday of each month from 2 to 3 p.m. In this engaging and informational jam-packed radio hour, hosts Sakura Sutter and Rory Reich interview folks who make a living crossing the veil, assisting others on their journeys of healing and self-discovery. Drawing from their own experiences, Sakura and Rory have come to realize how challenging it can be to understand it all. So they will ask the hard questions to not only reveal more truths and clarity, but in an effort to make spiritual sense. They hope by offering you, the listener, a resource where science meets spirituality that you too can finally put your skepticism to rest once and for all. So join them as they go Beyond the Veil. Taking care of your body's largest organ can be difficult, but not for Astera Skincare Mist. This topical skin spray supports your skin's own natural healing defenses. Astera Skincare Mist is a light misting spray, free of parabens, alcohol, toxins, and fragrance. This all-natural topical skin spray will take the woe out of your skincare worries without clogging your pores. Irritation, inflammation, redness, post-procedure sensitivities, no problem. 
With Astera Skincare Mist, you can continue about your day without the skin dismay. Acne, rosacea, psoriasis, sunburns, rashes, and fungus? Don't let these skin concerns inconvenience you. Instead, let Astera Skincare Mist allow you to be happy in the skin you're in. Available at Sakura Skin and Mind. Learn more at esteracare.com. That's E-S-T-H-E-R-A care.com. Are you trying to boost your fertility and get pregnant? Not sure what to eat during your current pregnancy? Are you currently breastfeeding during postpartum? Sacred Medicine Mamas can help you to map out and optimize your pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, and postpartum journey. Allow Dr. Janelle Clayton, chiropractor, and holistic nutritionist Marjorie Glenn to help you thrive during this special time in your life. We offer high-quality nutritional supplements, meal planning, as well as mindfulness practices for your overall well-being. Shop our online store and holistic dispensary to find the best organic and natural products for you and baby. Set up a virtual consultation today. Results are priceless. Book a free consultation now by going to sacredmedicinemamas.com. That's sacredmedicinemamas.com. Or call 541 639 4575. That's 541-639-4575. Exploring new territory every day. This is Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and to subscribe and share my YouTube channel and podcast, Love from the Hip. That's H-Y-P, anywhere you can find podcasts. Today, I have the absolute pleasure of having Dr. Claudia Black on my show. Dr. Black is an educator and addiction and trauma specialist for families. Hi, Dr. Black. Thank you for being here today. Hello, Sakura. It's great to be here and have a Northwest audience as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you are I know you're snowbirding right now in Arizona. Is that correct? I am, but I'm from the Northwest. And uh, so I have a home up there right now, and I'm in Arizona at the moment. Wonderful. Well, how long have you been working with children and adolescents of addicted or abusive households? Actually, over 40 years. And so hard to believe that. But it was back in the late 1970s that I first began my work in an an addiction treatment program. And that led me to uh, working with families. And families met kids. And uh, it's been a a great journey. Yeah. I I think for me, you know, I... There's so much fear of being raised in an addictive home, and uh, and there's so much shame in those family systems. And I just, nobody deserves to live with the kind of fear and shame. You know, not the kids don't deserve it, the partners don't deserve it, nor does the addicted person deserve it. And that's really been my driving belief all these years. So I still feel very passionate, and, and I feel very passionate about the possibility of recovery for everybody, too. That probably drives me as much. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and everyone deserves a, great a chance. That's great. So, so did you yourself grow up in a drug or alcohol abuse environment? Oh, I did. It's probably almost everybody in our field. Like I said, it's part of what draws us as well. But I did. I had a father who was addicted to alcohol, and he, uh, um, you know, became violent. And uh, so, a lot of what my work has been about sort of emanated from. Uh, I think that belief that I have that we don't deserve to live like this really came from my own family Mm. and that somehow there was enough self-worth in me that I knew I deserved to live differently. But as much I knew that everybody in my family did. And, um, and somehow at a really young age, I also got that as much as my father's behavior was hurtful, it really wasn't what he wanted it to be. That somehow he, uh, that something has had happened to him 
Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand it. I didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand alcoholism. Um, but somehow I was able to separate his behavior from him, and, and I'm grateful for that. Wow. I think it's given me a lot of compassion for the addicted person, yeah. but it also helped me not to internalize um, the messages that you're given when you're treated poorly. Yeah, and that's really profound for someone so young. So it, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. So yeah. was a lot of your coping mechanism t- uh, forgiveness as a child? Forgiveness? Oh no, no. Okay. <laughs> I was I was too scared. I didn't have time to forgive. Um, mm. I think that. Um, I didn't internalize, you know, mm. the kinds of messages that the behavior typically would implant on a child. But, um, no, I think forgiveness ultimately comes later when you understand what it is even you're reacting to. I think for a coping mechanism, for me, I found a lot of solace in school. Mm. And um, it's one of the, you know, I think when we talk about children from addiction, if they can find a sense of purpose in some arena of their life, that's going to help build a lot of resiliency and for some kids, and for me, school was that. One, it was a distraction from the fear um, and all the other feelings that go with it. But it was also a place that I found uh, I found some self-confidence and I found some esteem. And so whatever that is for those little kids, if they can find a sense of purpose that gives them some esteem, that becomes a buffer from some of what it is that's painful at home. That's usually also very confusing at home mm-hmm. because we don't know why what it is that's happening is happening. Right, which is so much more challenging now with schools, a lot of schools being closed, right? Offering that, that place of purpose for these kids. Mm-hmm. Yes, because they don't have access to be able to go and engage. Mm-hmm. So it's that much more challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of the messages that's so important to give young kids, and, and that is that they haven't caused the problems at home. And for me, somehow, I got that at a really young age. But when we talk about prevention programs or working with kids, you know, it's so important that we give them that message that they're not, co- they're not the cause of the problem. They're not the cause of their mother's depression or suicide or addiction or mm-hmm. father's. Um, and nor are they going to have the answers for that. You know, they cannot cure it and they cannot control it. Are really important messages. And so I think our challenge today in the pandemic, as you were alluding to, is, you know, school is the greatest resource outside of the home for kids. And, um, and I think you were even saying that in the introduction, it's a school. I mean, they don't have access to being fed when they're hungry at home. And, and lots of kids today, if there's neglect in the home, school is that source. But nor do they have just the comfort of being away from that, which is, is scary. Yeah. And Yeah, it's really disheartening. So, And I, and I do think that uh, social services and I think family service agencies are working a lot to utilize virtual media um, to reach out to kids. And, uh, you know, they're certainly not reaching the kids in the ways that we want them to, but I'm very aware of different agencies who are doing some wonderful things to keep kids connected to that outside world that's more supportive of them. That's really great. So, so Dr. Black, what inspired you to write this new book that you have coming out, It Will Never Happen oh. to Me?, well, it will never happen to me, actually. It's an old book. It was one of the first books I ever wrote, and it was about children in addictive homes and where I talked about the dysfunctional family rules, don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. I talked about the family roles and how kids can look good in spite of, and yet what we don't see is, is what's missing for those kids. But after this number of years, 
it truly needed, um, it, it's been used as a primer. It's been used as sort of a foundational book to understand kids. But it's so much, I've just learned so much over the years. So a part of what this book is about is putting what we call a trauma lens on things and on addiction in the family, that in fact what's going on in the family is traumatic stress, and that's going to influence the healing and the recovery process. So I went more in depth about the traumatic stress. I went more in depth about messages that we need to give kids. You know, when I first wrote this book, nobody had ever said addiction exists within the family and kids are impacted. Nobody ever said there's a higher correlation between physical abuse and sexual abuse. Just making those statements was a major breaking of uh, of the rules. Hmm. And so today I was able to really, in this edition, to talk more in depth um, about the impact all of that has. But in that process, I'm also able to talk more in depth about what recovery can look like and what are the steps to recovery. And the other piece is, when I first wrote It Will Never Happen to Me, it was really about children of alcoholics. And today we understand that uh, there's multiple addictive disorders mm-hmm. and that it's not just children of alcoholism, but it's children of other drug addictions as well. And it's children who are also impacted by process behavioral addictions, such as a gambling addiction or possibly a sex addiction. Um, and today we understand so much more the impact of growing up with addiction and how it fuels not just addictive disorders, but also how it fuels depression and anxiety. So there's just, you know, there's just a lot more knowledge. And since the book was still making a difference in people's lives, I thought, well, we just need to make it even stronger today. So I'm very excited. And it's definitely that. I've been reading your book, and there's some really powerful personal stories and even pictures, too, um, but yeah, yeah, I like your use of an offering of tools for people that maybe were in grew up in addicted households and now are adults still being challenged, right? So it's wonderful. I, you know, I use the concept of storytelling a lot because I think it's through the words of, of people who've lived the experience as they either talk about their recovery or talk about a particular issue um, or talk about what's occurred for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that doesn't really matter how different people's individual experiences are, they're going to find themselves in, in that book in various places. Absolutely agree. So can I ask you, what are the different roles of children and adolescents that they take on in order to survive these addicted households? And what you said is really important. I think that in all families, people will take on roles. What's different about being in a family where there is addiction is they ascribe to those roles rigidly. Mm-hmm. And they ascribe to those roles rigidly because of the fear and the shame. And what I mean by shame is the belief that who I am isn't okay. And with every one of these roles, there's going to be strengths. And with every one of these roles, and this is what people miss, is there are things that they do not learn. So it's very all or nothing. I have these strengths, and I'm really good at them but I have these things that I didn't get to learn and I didn't get to learn them in any capacity. And it's those things they didn't get to learn that needs to be the focus of either their therapy process or their recovery process, even if it's not in direct therapy. So quickly, one is many kids become those hero responsible children. They become the parent to themselves, to their brothers and their sisters, to their mothers and fathers. Other kids become lost adjusting children. They move into the woodwork, and they don't want to draw any attention to themselves. Other kids become those household social workers, 
the caretaker in the home who takes care of everybody's emotional needs. I'll do anything to take the fear out of this home, anything to take or lessen the anger. I'll do anything to make up for the disappointment or the embarrassment that's been caused. And then you have your mascot and your clown, and their role is to distract everybody from the reality of what's going on, and they do that with humor. Mm. And then lastly, there's your angry kid. And, you know, I believe that the angry child that, you know, walks through life with their arms raised and their fists clenched and their finger protruding, they're going to draw attention to themselves. But when they do, what happens is while they draw attention to themselves, the family doesn't really get seen. And usually they're acting out is really representative of the family dynamic. I also think those angry kids are closer to the truth. I think that they are more honest about what it is that's going on. Um, Now, when I said all of these roles have great strengths, it's great to be compassionate. It's great to know, you know, how to to listen in, in, in quietness. It's great to know how to take charge and lead. But the leader, um, you know, the kinds of things you don't get to learn is they don't learn healthy negotiation. Mm -hmm. They don't learn healthy conflict resolution. They don't learn how to attach value to their own personal needs because they're so busy really taking care of the whole system. They don't learn the healthy expression of feelings. They get to have distorted boundaries, and I can go on and on and on about what they don't learn. Yeah. Um, but there are certain things that are very related, like the adjuster who moves into the woodwork and doesn't want to draw attention. They're great at following, but they don't know how to lead. Hmm. A responsible child's great at leading, but they don't know how to follow. Um, so again, every role has sort of its own skill set that's missing for them. So but then I- that tells me what it is I can work on with them. Right, right. So can I ask you, um, we, were, we were a foster family growing up, and we took on actually children of an addicted and abusive household. Um, and I wanted to know, like, and one of, one of them we adopted, who's now my brother, um, but I was wondering, can you take on more than one role? Because I believe for him, he was the hero responsible child and also the social worker. And at such a young age, he was actually going out and buying whatever canned goods he could buy to feed all the children, as, as well as candy. Um, so can you take on more than one role? Yes, and there are certain roles that fit even better with each other. And one, that responsible child and that caretaking child is a great combination. And usually sets somebody up, by the way, to be a helping professional. Yeah. Um, most people will have at least two roles. And I always think of them, usually they have a primary role. And then they have one or two secondary. You know, for me, I was very much a hero child, a responsible child, um, and a caretaker emotionally. So I had two strong primaries. But at times of great fear, if there was any physical abuse in the home, I became the lost child. It did not do any good to try and take care of anybody in the moment. It did not do any good to try and be the other parent in the moment. The best thing I could do for survival, and remember these are survival roles, was to truly get so quiet and try and disappear that I wasn't even visible. So how that plays itself out is you go into adulthood and you and some fear gets triggered for some reason. You find yourself moving into that childlike role and disappearing. Um, and so we just take these roles right with us into our adult life. And as I said, some of them have some strengths, and we can build on those strengths, but what we didn't learn will get in the way of other parts of our life. In a a really difficult manner. Yeah, definitely. Well, you just answered my next question about how these roles follow them into their adult life. So thank you for that. 
Um, And with that, we're going to take a break, but everyone stay tuned for the Weekly Skinny up next. On this Weekly Skinny, what is the skinny on tanning beds anyway? I get it. We are moving into the Seattle gray season. And with the sun being next to non-existent, vitamin D is less available. But this does not mean that you should damage your skin or increase your risk of skin cancer in order to get vitamin D. Adequate levels of vitamin D can instead be achieved through food and supplements. After all, there is no such thing as a healthy tan. Tanning causes a weakening of connective fibers, which leads to skin wrinkles, sagging pigmentation, or sunspots, premature aging, and it causes DNA mutations, which can lead to skin cancer. Tanning is a direct response to the mutations that are occurring in our DNA. Essentially, when your skin cells are being threatened by UV rays, they kick into protection mode by distributing darker pigment cells or melanocytes to those cells on the surface. And when this pigment piles up on the surface, it looks tanner. This is why your skin gets darker the longer you stay out, because the more threatened your skin is, the more it works to form these pigment shields. People who have lighter skin have a hard time naturally protecting their skin because they can't create as much pigment as someone with darker skin, which is where antioxidants and sunscreen comes in. People with darker skin are also still prone to skin cancer and premature aging, despite having more pigment in their skin. Plus, they are also at risk of hypopigmentation, which is a loss of melanin or white spots. People who use tanning beds 10 or more times throughout their lives have a 34% more increased risk of developing melanoma compared to those who have never used indoor tanning beds. Also, people who use an indoor tanning bed before the age of 35 increase their risk of melanoma by 75%. According to the American Academy of Dermatology, skin cancer is the most common cancer in the U.S., affecting people of all skin colors. One in five Americans will develop skin cancer in their lifetime, with 9,500 people diagnosed daily. More than 1 million Americans today are living with melanoma, the deadliest form of skin cancer. And tanning beds cause an upwards of 400,000 cases of skin cancer in the U.S. each year alone. Not to mention, many tanning beds are not regulated properly as they fall under Class 1 medical devices in many states, which is the same designation as bandages and tongue depressors. A lot of tanning places also make false claims that they are non-burning devices in which they offer photo protection before the ambient UVR exposure, which just isn't true. The truth is, these high-pressure tanning beds use bulbs that emit UVA radiation 10 to 15 times that of noontime sunlight. So if you are craving that bronze glow this winter, go for the sunless tanning treatment instead. It's a healthier alternative. Is your tween starting to experience a change in their skin? Want to get them on an easy at-home routine and have good skin hygiene? Allow Sakura Skin in Mind to help your tween out. This brief, deep cleansing and educational 35-minute facial is just enough to get your tween, ages 10 to 12 years old, started off in the right direction. Sakura Skin in Mind uses the latest in the clinical skincare industry to care for your tween the right way for just $65. Sakura Skin in Mind, treating skin out there with an of treatment and a pound of protection. Call 206-730-7429 or go to sakuraskinandmind.com. Did you know that there's power in the number three? Not only is it the number that our brains remember best, it's also the triad as it contains a beginning, a middle, 
and an in, so it represents wholeness. What better way to absorb information than from the power of three? Coaches, Sakura Sutter, Rory Reich, and Brenda Reese on the Conscious Coaching Hour. This brand new live show airs the fourth Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. These three intuitive and transformational coaches will reveal their own life experiences, share candid conversations, and offer up advice using their individual spiritual gifts, intuition, and intellect to help you overcome the challenges you may be facing in life. No matter where you are, the Conscious Coaching Hour will meet you there and shed light on the things that matter most to help awaken your intuition and inner coach and to help you live your best life talk radio with a purpose alternative talk 1150 welcome back to love from the hip i'm spiritual hypnotherapist master esthetician and your host sakura sutter don't forget my new show airing wednesdays on the conscious coaching hour at the end of the month and today i have the absolute joy of having dr claudia black on my show dr black is an educator and addiction and trauma specialist for families So, Dr. Black, I was hoping you can go back to um, how might these roles follow them into their adult life? Well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that what I learned to do to survive as I'm growing up, I naturally take with me. It does not dawn on me. One, it doesn't even dawn on me to let go of any of that way of coping because it's become the norm for me. And if anything, I'm patting myself on the back for having survived so as I go into my adult life, if I'm that responsible child, chances are I go on to school of some sort, and um, I'm very goal-oriented, I'm very well-disciplined, and so sometimes from a work or career standpoint, that works out really well. But where I'll get into trouble in that role is usually in personal relationships. I end up needing to be in charge. Um, I don't know how to be on a team because I'm the one who has to be in charge, the other things that I didn't learn in terms of uh, how to be healthy in terms of talking about feelings, um, very rigid. I see things from an all-or-nothing perspective. That's going to interfere in my intimate relationships. It's also going to interfere in my ability in which to parent in a healthy way. Now, also, if I am that caretaker and I take care of everybody's emotional needs, that might set me up to do some kind of service work in my professional life if I have a professional life. But what happens is in a personal relationship and as a parent, I'm so busy wanting to make make peace with everything that I really discount other people's emotional reality. Hmm. I, again, put up walls because I can't bear to have any kind of conflict so we don't have any healthy conflict resolution. I'm so busy focused on everybody else's needs that I become needless and then my needs don't get met. And then when my needs don't get met, ultimately I'm going to get angry or depressed. So those are just a couple of the ways. Mm -hmm. Um, If I'm that mascot, you know, I deflect anything that's serious with humor. Um, And, you know, that's real cute when you're six and might still be cute when you're 12. (laughs) But when you're 28 years of age and you're in a relationship or you're at work, you're trying to raise your kids, you know, it's, it's like being six and 12 all over again. And, uh, and then, then you have this whole dynamic of what do alcohol or drugs do for the different roles? You know, first of all, if you're the acting out child, that's the way you've always acted out for years. But what if you're that responsible child and life is so serious and you have all these goals? When you begin to use, and most people do, for just a moment, you can set the burden of the world off to the side and it allows you to relax. Mm-hmm. Now, that's scary, but... 
there's an attraction there that you don't know how to get on your own. So you have a second drink and a third drink or toke or snort or whatever it is. And, and I say that doesn't necessarily make you addicted, but it makes you thirsty. It makes you want to go a second, third, and fourth time. Hmm. If you're the one who is taking care of everybody's emotional needs, when you drink and use for just this moment, you're not so sure you care about everybody else's emotional needs. And while you feel guilty for being so selfish, there is an attraction because it's nice not to be taking care of everybody all of the time. And that's the setup for second, third, and fourth. And pretty soon we can become dependent upon. So each role actually has its own direct relationship with what alcohol or drugs or another addiction uh, behavior could Mm. do for that person. Okay. Which brings me to my next question. Do you think children of addicts are more likely to be addicts? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. The research has played that out and substantiated that for all the years I've been in the field. One, they are more likely to become addicted themselves because there's a genetic predisposition as it particularly relates to substance use. Um, A genetic predisposition does not mean a given, but typically if you take a genetic predisposition and couple that with any kind of traumatic stress, psychological injury, that is the setup. Mm. But also the modeling that takes place in the home in that, you know, drinking and using is what people do it's the only thing people do to so-called have fun. It's the only thing they do to deal with their stress. Um, and and I haven't learned other ways to deal with my stress. I had no models. I didn't uh, have people to teach me, you know, better coping mechanisms. And and then then you have it as the anesthetizer. And I think that's probably the greatest piece. Mm-hmm. There was a, a young boy who said to me, I had a hole in my gut, and alcohol and drugs were the only thing that would fill it up. And I drank and I used to get absolutely blithering numb. Mm. And that's what happens for kids from addictive homes and or abusive homes is there is a hollowness. There is an emptiness. There's a big hole. Yeah. And uh, alcohol and drugs will fill that. Mm. And but do- it's also important to notice that sometimes people will switch addictions in families. I'm going to make sure I don't end up like my mother or my father who was a pill addict or a heroin addict or you know, an alcoholic. And in fact they don't end up doing the same drug of choice that their parent was, but they go to a different drug. Right. I mean, I'm going to make sure that I'm not a heroin addict, but, you know, marijuana is not going to be a problem for me. Mm. Um, we see that kind of switching. I'm going to be sure I'm not an alcoholic, and then that's somebody that will end up addicted to other kinds of drugs. Or even and just like gambling, right? Or That's right. Yeah. It could be, a, you know, I have a mom or dad who is addicted to alcohol or drugs, and, and I totally abstain then you see that they have become a gambler or have a different type of addiction. Mm-hmm. And do many end up marrying or choosing partners who are also addicts? Yeah, and that's confusing for people too. But there's a strong likelihood um, of marrying or getting into a committed relationship uh, with, if it's not somebody who's an addict, it's somebody who's really unhealthy. And But there's a few dynamics there. Let's say somebody is an addict. I was raised in a home with substance use, and I end up married to somebody who's an addict. One is, you could be addicted to the same drug of choice my father had, but I don't see it as addiction because you're in an earlier stage. Maybe by the time I was old enough to remember my dad, he was middle and late stage alcoholic. But I meet you, and you're 22, 25. I didn't know my dad then. 
and you're in earlier stage. So if no, I don't understand there's a progression. It could be the same drug of choice, and I just don't see it for what it is. Hmm. And then the other piece is it's often a different drug. Yeah, I make sure I don't end up marrying my dad, and you don't even drink at all. I'm so relieved, but I marry somebody who has become a sex addict. I marry somebody who's become a gambler. And then you have the added piece. Oh, I knew he had a problem, but, you know, you know, I'm used to that. I know how to cope with that. Mm, it's familiar. And what that implies is impoverished expectations. That I don't deserve any better. Um, I don't deserve any better than to live with, you know, I know how to live with traumatic stress. It's okay. And the other, I can see beyond their addiction. Um, I can see beyond their behavior into their goodness. And everybody has goodness. Yeah. But for me, who's attaching myself to you one more time, that's more reflective of putting other people's needs ahead of my own. Mm-hmm. And it's more reflective of I don't deserve any better than that. Mm. And that's also so rationalizing that behavior, right? Yes. Yeah. And you're so skilled at it. You know, you've mm-hmm. had 20 years of rationalizing, minimizing. And so easy to take that. You take it right with you. You mm-hmm. rationalize all kinds of situations. You deny all kinds of reality. And for some children, they lived a lot in fantasy as a child. And boy, when you lived in, with fantasy as a child, you can really get into fantasy regarding relationships. Mm. And I always say fantasy is the crux of relationship addiction, needing to be in a relationship to feel like you have some kind of value. Mm. Wow. And so aside from rationalizing the addicted behavior as a child, do a lot of children, are, are they unable to identify that their parent is even chemically dependent? Some of them are unable to identify it. One is a lot of people say, well, I knew my you know, dad took drugs. I knew my mom drank a lot. But without understanding addiction, they don't name it as addiction. Mm. Other kids don't necessarily see it. Um, they may see the behavior, particularly with pill addiction. They, um, they may see the behavior but they don't necessarily connect the behavior to a parent taking pills because they don't see them ingesting those pills. Mm. Or they have a parent who's outside of the home so much that they don't see the direct connection between their behavior and their usage. So, And then sometimes on one level they really know that their parent um, is an addict, but there's still a lot of stigma around calling it for what it is. And if I say my parent is an addict, or if I say this is how my parent treats me, am I saying that they're bad people? Am I saying that I don't love them? And that's not what, you know, kids want to say, and that's not right. necessarily true. Right. Now, these are not bad people. These are people who have an illness, and it happens to be addiction. And these kids, you know, when I have a line when I talk about physical abuse, that when kids are being physically abused by their parents, they don't stop loving their parents but they do stop loving themselves. Mm. And these kids want to love their parents, and they want to know that their parents love them. But when the behavior is such that it's so fearful, in time they just internalize shame that somehow there's something wrong with them or their parents wouldn't be acting like this. Mm. And so how do kids hold on to trauma? They hold on to it in a couple of different ways. One is they hold on to it from in terms of the beliefs, beliefs that they've internalized about themselves. Um, I'm not of value. Um, I'm worthless. I'm stupid. There's something wrong with me. So they hang on to trauma in terms of these core beliefs about who they are. They also hang on to trauma physically. 
Um, being subject to trauma is sort of a, a body, mind, and spirit impact. And that today, when we do actual trauma work, uh, it involves a lot of uh, a physical physicality in terms of people will cellularly hold their emotions within their body. And you can see it in terms of their body stance. You can see it in terms of various aches and pains that they have as well. So we have some therapies, particularly somatic type therapies, that help them to sort of release that on a a physical level. It's also why um, a lot of activities are so helpful for kids. If we can get kids physically moving, if kids engage in dance, if they engage in song, they engage in craft, um, artwork, that is a way in which to calm down that what we call a dysregulated nervous system Hmm. because these kids have a dysregulated nervous system. They have that part of the brain that their emotional reasoning is dictating everything that they're doing. They can't make good decisions for themselves. They don't see choices. So there are some very natural ways to help what we call, we say emotionally regulate them, but another word for that is to help ground them in their bodies. And in doing so, it's going to be easier for them to get, engage in some healthy problem solving. That's, that's amazing. And seeing yeah. choices. Yeah, and that's what they need. Well, we're going to take another break, but everyone stick around for more Love from the Hip. Hi, we are Sacred Medicine Mamas, and we are on a mission to help people heal and feel better through a variety of holistic wellness practices. We offer holistic wellness services for busy people who are ready to achieve optimal health. We are a health and wellness clinic and a community of empowered people finding true healing and health. We are not only practitioners passionate about people's health. We too are busy professional people. We have been where you are and we have experienced similar health issues. This is why we love working with people just like you to help you find true healing of your own. We offer services including chiropractic, massage therapy, weight loss and nutrition, pregnancy and postpartum nutrition, yoga and fitness. Virtual sessions are available. Book an appointment with us today by going to sacredmedicinemamas.com. That's sacredmedicinemamas.com. Or call 541-639-4575. That's 541-639-5475. Did you know that there's power in the number three? Not only is it the number that our brains remember best, it's also the triad, as it contains a beginning, a middle, and an end, so it represents wholeness. What better way to absorb information than from the power of three? Coaches Sakura Sutter, Rory Reich, and Brenda Reese on the Conscious Coaching Hour. This brand new live show airs the fourth Wednesday of every month from 2 to 3 p.m. These three intuitive and transformational coaches will reveal their own life experiences, share candid conversations, and offer up advice using their individual spiritual gifts, intuition, and intellect to help you overcome the challenges you may be facing in life. No matter where you are, the Conscious Coaching Hour will meet you there and shed light on the things that matter most to help awaken your intuition and inner coach and to help you live your best life. A health crisis is one of the most challenging situations we will experience in our lifetime. It leaves us frightened, confused, and asking, why did this happen to me? 
transformational coach Rory Reich experienced his healing crisis when the life he had so carefully constructed came crumbling down around him. The universe had offered him a challenge. He chose to accept it and to rediscover who he was before it was too late. In his book, Transform Yourself Through Disease, Rory shares his personal journey alongside eight practical steps to help those who are stuck realize their self-impairing beliefs and discover ways of transforming them so they can reclaim their health and create the life of their dreams. Don't let your health crisis define you. Take the next step and transform yourself today. For a free life coaching consultation, contact Rory at RoryReich.com. That's R-O-R-Y-R-E-I-C-H.com. Going against the grain has never been this much fun. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget, this show airs right here on KKNW every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. If you are just joining us, today I have the great pleasure of having Dr. Claudia Black on my show. Dr. Black is an educator and addiction and trauma specialist for families. So, Dr. Black, can any advice for a parent that may be dealing with another parent who may be falling into addictions or relapsing right now during this trying time? Well, first of all, don't approach them about what it is you're seeing when they're using or when they're drinking. You need to find that moment in which they're not using or drinking in which they have a conversation with them. And if you're concerned about somebody who could could be falling into addictions, you know, what you want to do is you want to come from a place of love and you want to talk about this is what I see and this is uh, what I fear, this is what I see. Uh, this is what I fear, this is maybe what I believe, this is what I would like you to do. So you want to you have a suggestion um, versus I just want you to stop. Remember that they're not probably going to be able to stop on their own, so uh, you're not just looking for them to say, oh, oh yeah, okay, I'll handle it. But you're going to want to say, but I'd really like you to go for some help, and this is where you can go. So know what resources are readily available. And in the pandemic, there's still a lot of resources available. Mm. I'm going to uh, recommend the 12-step programs. I'm going to recommend it for you, the parent who's dealing with the other parent, Al-Anon. You can Zoom it. There are ways to access it virtually, 12-step programs for the person who is addicted. If they were already involved in a treatment program or had a sponsor in 12-step, you can refer them back there. There's also this concept of intervention, bringing somebody in to help facilitate what's going to be a very difficult discussion. Uh, but just know that, you know, today we have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in recovery. And some of them have relapsed and have come back into recovery. And there are a lot of people very willing to help. Mm. But you've got to be willing to take it really outside of your own family okay. to get that help. All right. And then any advice for parents out there looking to adopt but are concerned about adopting a child from an addicted household? When they need you, they need families as much as anybody else needs families. And probably the difference has to do with what the age is and what the dynamics were in terms of being carried in the womb, in terms of of abuse or how toxic, you know, were they born. You're going to have problems if they're born with some withdrawal symptoms themselves. There's often um, some cognitive problems um, that they may or may not be able to grow out of. Um, So you just really need to know who it is that you're adopting and what it is that they have been exposed to. Um, And typically, one, all I can say is these kids need you. So the more you can understand about addiction, 
the better. Um, they will probably need, a, if they're older and, you know, if they're, if they're older at all and just not taken into the family really right at birth, they're probably going to have some discipline problems, maybe some emotional problems. So you need to be really sort of set up yourself emotionally uh, to be able to cope with that and, and to think about how that will impact the rest of your family as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, as I said, these kids are deserving. They want love, and that love comes with a fairness of structure. It comes with uh, a soothing touch, a soft voice, and parents who are willing uh, to spend time with these kids in a loving manner and to help them find their own sense of purpose in life. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And so what are some of the programs you have in place to help kids right now? Well, actually, and this is in Washington State, and there's two programs in Washington State. There's a camp for kids called Camp Mariposa, and it was created by Seattleite Jamie Moyer and his wife, uh, Karen Moyer. At the time, it was once called the Moyer Foundation, and it's now called the Aluna Network, alunanetwork.org. And there is a camp north of Seattle and one down by Vancouver, Washington, that's at no cost for kids 9 through 12. And they're doing a wonderful job of attempting to meet their needs as well because kids cannot go to camp during the pandemic, but really attending to these kids during that period of time. There's also the National Association for Children of Addiction that will have lots of resources that people can use within their faith community, that can use within their schools. And for myself personally, what I'm involved in is I actually oversee a young adult program for young people 18 to 26 years of age, and it's called the Claudia Black Center at the Meadows. These are kids, though, in acute crisis, acute crisis with their addictions, acute crisis with mental health, depression, and anxiety disorders. It's an inpatient residential treatment program in Arizona. It's all amazing. So can I ask you how you've managed to stay so strong? You're hearing all of the stories that you've heard. Oh, my gosh. Um, when I practice a lot of self-care, and I think the, one of the messages that I often have to give other people is to be sure and take care of yourself as well as you're trying to take care of somebody else. And because I think that to be here in the long run, you have to practice self-care. And that self-care has a lot to do with my own friendship network. And uh, for me, it has a lot to do with physical exercise, taking me out of the mental and the um, emotional impact. And... Uh, So that's just, I learned it at a very young age that I wouldn't last very long if I didn't engage in some self-care because you can get secondary trauma when you're exposed to so many people who've had such traumatic lives. Hmm. Um, And I can tell you there are times in which I'm angry about what it is I see um, and times of which it brings you to tears what it is you see. Um, So it's not like you disconnect emotionally from the experiences uh, that you witness and that you hear about. Um, but you develop internal boundaries uh, to try and not take that on and take it home with you. Um, well, and I imagine the level of trust that these kids have for you or with you is so great just based on what you went through yourself. Kids really like, I think a lot of people in recovery really like that. They like to know somebody else has had some similar experiences. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I notice about my own program is you can hire all the skilled staff in the world, but it's the compassion and the empathy 
that your staff has for the shoes that that young person is walking in that really makes the difference for these kids. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that kids really want to know from their parents is that they're loved. And when kids are in trouble and they've acted in ways that have been hurtful toward their parents, um, you know, they they just think that their parents will never forgive them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when it comes to addiction in the family, forgiveness is going to be important somewhere along the line. And... Uh, but I always say is you can't get to a place of forgiveness if you're if you continue to deny your emotional reality. That you really don't get to a place of heartfelt forgiveness if you deny the things that made you sad and fearful and embarrassed and angry. Not that you have to share that with that person, but you need to not deny that for yourself. Right. And um, by being honest with yourself emotionally, I think you can ultimately come to a place of forgiveness. That's wonderful. Well, how can my listeners learn more about you and your book? Oh, <laughs> um, my book, It Will Never Happen to Me, and that's published through uh, Central Recovery Press, and I have lots of other books, too. Um, I have a book called The Spoken Legacy more re- recently as well, two years ago, that people will like. But ClaudiaBlack.com, I have a website. That'll direct you ultimately to the publishing company or through Amazon, and uh, those are really the best ways. Okay. I have a very private life. Um, I have a Facebook page. You're welcome to, uh, you know, tap into that Facebook page. It's just about what I do professionally. Well, wonderful. ClaudiaBlack.com will be very helpful. And the Claudia Black Center, um, and that's at the Meadows here in Wickenburg, Arizona. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for, thank you for your work. It's it's just incredible. Thank you for all that you do for these kids. And And thank you for being willing to take on a subject like this particularly as we go into the holiday seasons. And thank my listeners for up there in that Seattle, Washington area. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you to Eric, my super-duper producer, and you, the listener. You can find me at sakurasutter.com. Really love the show. Don't be shy. Drop me a line at sakura at lovefromthehip.com. And tune in next Wednesday for another Go Beyond the Veil with my co-host Rory Reich, where we will be taking calls for numerology readings. Stay kind out there, stay true to you, and don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead, I dare ya.